0: Hello, I'm Dr. Anika Prather, and welcome to Kush Classics. On today's episode, I am sharing with you a recording of a talk I gave at Baylor University's Classics Conference. I hope you enjoy. I guess
1: I can see you here and here. So our final speaker of the day, um, Dr. Anika K. Prather, is the Director for High Quality Curriculum and Instruction at the Institute for Education Policy at Johns Hopkins University. She's served in public and private schools for over 20 years. She's the founder of The Living Water School, a unique Christian school for independent learners based on the educational philosophies of classical education and the Sudbury model. And she also teaches at the English department at Howard University, where her classes focus on the Black classical tradition. She published two books about her journey to bring classical education to the Black community, Living in the Constellation of the Canon, and with Dr. Angel Abhantaram, The Black Intellectual Tradition, Reading, Freedom, in Classical Literature. So please welcome Dr. Anika A. Prattler. Thank
0: you. I am so happy to be here. Um, My middle name is actually with a T. It's Tanae. And the only reason I'm correcting it because it's something really dear to me. My first and middle name, are Yoruba, And I just really am so grateful for my parents giving me my first and middle name, connecting me to my ancestors. Um, And I'm starting with that little bit of about me because this this conference, oh gosh, I wish I was with you guys. And I felt so lonely because as I was listening to everyone, just really connecting so much with my heart in this journey, I'm saying amen by myself. There's no one here. I tried putting in a little text to see if anyone would see my text and just say and then I text an angel to say, oh, my gosh, that person was good. And this person was ga- good. And then during the break, I'm emailing some of the speakers. Um, just beautiful words um, that surprisingly really connects to my talk. Um, okay, is everyone okay? Okay. Um, the title of my talk is Narrative of Hope. And I believe I'm saying his name correctly, Dr. Ranking, Dr. Patrice Ranking. when he says, myth and memory lands on hope. I just really connected with that because that is exactly how I am seeing everything we've been discussing. And so interesting is that, what's so interesting is that each of you in each of your talks leading up to this one, uh, really connect with what I'm hoping to share with you today. Um, I'm going to attempt to sing to you because it's such an important part of my point. Uh, even as COVID is really giving me a real battle right now. Um, and the song I've chosen though, it connects to a lot of what we're talking about today is called let us break bread together. Now this is not, I'm not trying to make this a church service. That's not what this is. (laughs) Um, But there is a history behind this song, and the message I feel this song is trying to say connects to what we're doing here this weekend. Um, And if you know it, you can feel free to sing along with me. It's an old Methodist spiritual and African-American spiritual. Let us break bread together on our knees. Let us break bread together on our knees. When I fall on my knees with my face to the rising sun, O oh Lord, have mercy. On me. The reason why I have fallen in love with classics is because, from my own life, and now on the latter part of this journey of my life, seeing its connection to all of us, I see its potential of bringing us all together. And when I think of that metaphor of bread, It is often, the word bread often is a metaphor for words or text. Um, There's a book that's come out not too long ago that says Breaking uh, Bread with the Dead. It's a reference to joining in that great conversation with the great thinkers of the canon. And how all of us have connected there in some way. To prove my point and to, or to clarify my point even more, I want to read a quote from um, James Baldwin and he says this, you think your pain and your heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read. It was books that taught me that the things that tormented me most were the very things that connected me with all the people who were alive or who had ever been alive. When we heard just now how myth and memory is our hope, what is it that we are remembering? And and what is myth? I believe myth are these stories or these works of the canon, these narratives from ancient times and forward. Was, was just humanity's way of writing down their human experiences to be remembered. And they inspire us all. They give us wisdom. They give us an understanding. They, they, uh, they help us realize we're not alone in whatever our human experience is. And so I'm going to share with you just a few stories. I know we don't have a lot of time. Uh, with some specific quotes and connections to various classic texts. It's a lot I want to share with you, and it may even seem a little complex. But I'm hoping that as I try to lay out this tapestry for you of how my life, my ancestors' lives, have correct connected with those from the West, North, South, East, West, wherever, and oftentimes the common thread is this intersection with this body of work that has brought us all here together. And so I'm going to try to unveil that tapestry for you. And I'm hoping that you will see that there has been this history of humanity breaking bread together through our common human experiences and those experiences outlined in the myths we hold dear, in the stories, the philosophies, the autobiographies, the political philosophies that we have studied and poured over, we have been able to connect to them. And this is our common shared heritage. Now, let me start off by saying I am on this journey this path to try to finish reading all of Chinua Achebe's t- literature. Um, I don't know if anyone can identify with this, but I am kind of, I cannot sit down to you, with you and write a whole blueprint of what leads me to read what I read. Oftentimes it's, I had a dream or I'm sitting down doing something. Oh, I should read this book. And I kid you not every time there was a reason So the first part that I read from Chinua Achebe was from his book, his memoir called There Was a Country. And in that book, he begins to talk about his education and his love for uh, classics and how his parents had a love for it. And it's also kind of a defense for why he chose to tell the story of the Igbo people in English. And he wanted to be able to be his own storyteller. He wanted to protect the narrative of the Igbo people using a universal language. And so we we find that as I go through these stories that I'm gonna share with you today, that one of the main reasons that black people connected to classics was for that reason. Yes, there are some who did it to assimilate. There are some who did it to forget their heritage. I, I even get kind of irritated with um, uh, Groneosa, uh, Yucasa Groneosa and even Olauda Equiano because they sometimes will say that their uh, appropriation of the literature and the culture was a way of taking on that persona as a way to survive and i'm not that kind of a person but i understand i'm learning to understand why people do what they do but one of the main reasons and i believe that uh dr e ashley harrison talks a lot about it in his book the ebony column was it was definitely a tool of survival it was a weapon it was a way to navigate this foreign land not a way to forget your roots or who you are but a way to survive. And so I like to start my storytelling in ancient Africa. And I do that intentionally. I I, I, I think of the term Sankofa uh, uh, from the Adinkra symbols of Ghana. And that that bird facing forward, but looking back tells me that I must go way back to where it all began. And my beginning did not start in 1619. I don't know about you. My beginning did not start at slavery. That's really a blip on on my ancestors' timeline, an important blip, but a blip nonetheless. But I want to go back as as one of my students at Howard says, he wrote this for his midterm when we were, when we ruled the world. I wanna go back there. And I wanna go back to a time where there was an Ethiopian, well, they believe he was Ethiopian, man named Terence. Who was brought into ancient Rome as an enslaved person? But he was brought from that great empire of Ethiopia. And we're thinking about Egyptian empires, Ethiopian empires, the empire of Kush. Uh, we think of Aksum. And we think about all of these African civilizations that not only ruled the continent of Africa. But if you read various texts of ancient Greece and Rome, they were feared, they were respected. And so Terence comes into ancient Rome. And, you know, it's so funny. Let me just put a little quarter in the meter right here. This happens in the story of Terence and the story of Phyllis Wheatley as well. Um, Oftentimes, when when a person from Africa is brought into the West through slavery, you'll usually see a quote that says something. And the master was was really surprised at how intelligent they were. So they educated them. And, and one thing I like to tell my students at Howard is, why would they be surprised? They came from these great civilizations. If we, we have to rethink of how we think about Africa in the first place. And so what I like to say is, when Terence came into ancient Rome or when Phyllis Wheatley came into America, the only thing that set them apart from their enslavers was they just weren't literate in the language of this foreign land. And they had to learn that. And so Terence comes into Rome. And uh, like I said before, his master notices how intelligent he is. He educates him classically. He, and I'm going to do this quickly cause you've heard a lot of these already. And he, and he learns to really master the Latin language um, he begins to be inspired by the Greek tragedies to write plays and he he begins to uh, create comedies. One of them being the girl from Andros and, but he implements some elements of Greek tragedy. Um, even though he may not have had a chorus, he would, he, he had a prologue or he had some way of, um, that, 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 that the action of the play was being narrated throughout to kind of guide the audience through. And he wrote these plays. And his plays were so, so well received, he ended up earning his freedom and he ended up being in the Royal court and he became part of the Scipionic circle, which was a gathering of politicians, artists, poets, cultural leaders, political leaders to just talk about art and philosophy and literature. And Terence was in that group. He was friends with the men who defeated Hannibal, who often would pay for his plays to be performed. This is Terence dwelling in royalty, connecting to the West because of his literacy in the West. And so this is this. And his, his literature or his poet or his plays became so popular because of how well he wrote Latin that even in those early schools, they would use his plays as a way to study Latin. And I want you to remember that I said that because Terrace is going with us through this whole story <laughs> and I, and it's going to, it's amazing that this story is called narrative of hope. And I'm hoping that you'll see why I'm calling it that by the time I get to the end. So he passes away. We're not sure if he died of disease, a shipwreck or what have you, but pretty young, he passes away. We know that he wrote a lot of plays, but I think we have like six, seven, eight plays left. And we would think that Terence is gone, but we see him again. He crosses the ocean figuratively. He crosses the ocean. His plays end up in early America, in the early 17, mid to early 17, the mid to late 1700s. And just as it was in ancient Rome, his plays were used as a textbook for teaching early American students Latin. How do we know this? There's a letter that John Adams writes to his son, John Quincy Adams, where he says, If you want to master Latin, you must read the plays of Terence. Now i named some different names so that you can write it down, look it up. If you're a teacher, you can refer to this in your classes. If you're a student, you can include this and do further research. I'm hoping this will be helpful to you. So I'm trying to keep track of names so that I can share those with you. And so John Adams is telling his son, you must study this. Now this is an important factor because not too long, After this, we're seeing Phyllis Wheatley rise. And Phyllis Wheatley, same story. This is why she identifies with Terrence so much. I'm going to read a quote from her play in a minute. I mean, from her poem in a minute. But she she identifies with Terrence because like her, she was taken from her home as a probably between seven and ten years old. I I think younger, just based on some, some, some signs we have about that. But she was very young, alone. Sometimes we hear that story. She came to America from Africa and we think she went on carnival cruise line, but this was a seven-year-old child. Like just, if you're a mom, I want you to just process. I don't think we even process that enough. I have a daughter who's eight and she went missing for 20 minutes. It was the longest 20 minutes of my life. I literally almost lost my mind. I had all types of nightmares of what happened to her. I dropped her off at ballet or my father dropped her off at ballet. And when they went in to find her, she was not in her class. She was not in the waiting room. She was nowhere to be found. They call me. We can't find her. I'm yelling and screaming on the phone for 20 minutes. Where's my baby? Jesus, where's my baby? So can you imagine Phyllis Wheatley's mother? And can you imagine Phyllis Wheatley? Finally, she was, practicing a dance in another room. We found her and all is well, but, but just imagine a seven-year-old girl being alone in this crude ship chained with possibly someone from a rival tribe, because they often did that. They mixed up tribes. so You couldn't have any connection with your heritage. And she's who knows what happened to this poor little girl. We can only imagine with the way they treated young slave women and girls. We can only imagine what happened to poor Phyllis Wheatley, but somehow she survived that trip from West Africa to up north, I believe, Massachusetts. And there she is on an auction block, most likely completely naked with people checking her jaw, checking her weight as if she's cattle. And John Wheatley sees her. And the way the story is told, you would almost think because he owned other people he was a slave owner but somehow he was drawn to Phyllis not just for enslavement and he brings her into his home and he gives her to his wife to be her servant and just like with Terrence they were surprised at how smart she was that always kills me when I hear that (laughs) because what I know about the continent of Africa no one should be surprised at how smart a brown person is I digress. So here she goes. She's here with with Phyllis. With um, Phyllis Wheatley is there with John Wheatley, and they begin to educate her classically, going back to that last statement in the talk before mine. Myth and memory lands in hope. Phyllis Wheatley is mirroring what Terence went through, and and I can I can imagine that. When she came across Terence in her studies, and I'm about to talk to you about how she came across Terence. She says, though, about Terence in her poem called, I believe, To Macenus. Now, Macenus was a very well-known uh, person in ancient Rome who would often fund uh, their works. And here she says to, about Terence, that happier Terence, all the choir inspired, his soul replenished and his bosom fired. But say ye muses, why this partial grace to one alone of Afrique's sable race from age to age, transmitting thus his name with the first glory in the realms of fame. I love that she's connecting with Terrence. It's almost like she is. He is a good ghost. He is like her friendly ghost to her. And she is finding hope in that memory of this ancient African who like her was taken from his homeland and brought into a Western culture. And so she like Terence, dove into the study of classics because she looked at Terence and saw what it did for him. And she said, I'm going to do the same. And so that's what she does. And before long, we want to know why, how did she come to know about Terrence? Well, there's another book that we're going to see when we talk about Frederick Douglass. There was a, one of the things I've been doing, I'm an educator. my first love is K-12 education. So on this classics journey, I'm trying to trace the history of education in in the black community and in America overall, because I, really feel this is kind of a key to solving some of our issues in society is understanding the best way to be educated. And we can look at all of our ancestors to get a clue on that. And so I've taken a look at, well, what kind of education did Phyllis Wheatley probably have? Well, classical education was the education of America. It was the public school education. So whether the enslaved person, got the education because the master allowed it or in Frederick Douglass, Frederick Douglass's case, they stole it. They snuck it they're They're dusting off the furniture and listening in on the master's children's lessons. However, they began to take classical education for themselves because they saw it as a way to survive. And so this education that Phyllis Willie got in classics gave her the literacy she needed to be like Chinua Achebe says at the beginning of my talk, her own storyteller. We may not have her autobiography, but if you read all of her poetry, it is her autobiography. And, and she owns that story. And there are times we can get frustrated with John Wheatley and Susan Wheatley because they owned people. And I am, I sometimes in, these, in this journey, I feel very schizophrenic. Because on the one hand, I am really excited about how they really supported Phyllis Wheatley and made sure the world knew she is the author of this poetry. But then I'm like, but why do you got to own people? So I just, I struggle. You know, my, all of my ancestors were enslaved people. So I'm back and forth. Uh, it's a struggle for me, but I'm trying to dig out this truth. And so and so one part of her education involved studying the plays of Terrence, as we saw uh, uh, J- John Adams articulates there. Another part of her journey was probably studying the Columbian Order as well. And the Comble- the Columbian Order was a main textbook of early American schools. This is so important, my friends. This is so important to understand. We, we we read so much history on black education, but we don't understand the philosophy. What was the education that Martin Luther King had? Frederick Douglass took for himself and Du Bois and others that made them that made Angela Davis, who she is. What was that education? Why is it that Huey P Newton taught himself to read reading Plato's Republic? Was it just a book he saw on the shelf? Why? Because this was the only education that surrounded everyone black or whites. And so this is what was kind of bringing America together. I'm gonna go deeper with this in a minute. I hope you can follow me. (laughs) I got to keep track of my time. And so the Columbian order was a main textbook and the philosophy underlying the Columbian orator was the philosophy of an ancient Roman uh, educator named Quintilian who believed that you should educate people to be spokesmen and women from infancy. And he was inspired, by speakers or orators like Cicero, which is why Cicero, some of Cicero's uh, excerpts from his speeches are in the Colombian orator. Because if you think about how Cicero was able to win the fight against, I hope I'm saying this name right, Catiline, I believe, who was planning a conspiracy against Roman rulers and leaders. And instead of like going after them in his own strength, Cicero used a speech, speeches to unveil, to unveil this conspiracy. and hes at that time, he saved the Republic. And so the Colombian orator, or rooted in the teachings of Quintilian, who felt that there is more power in oration or in words. This is what came into America. And this is what birth, again, one of my schizophrenic relationships, Thomas Jefferson, (laughs) I just have to be honest. My friends, Just gotta be honest about where I am in my journey. Thomas Jefferson. Yes. I struggle with him. My goodness. Do I struggle, but he did help write these foundational documents that have been so instrumental in all of our history, such as the constitution, the declaration of independence and others, that use of logic and speaking and oration and putting words together. Quintilian says you should be able to present yourself in such an articulate way. Using words in such a masterful way that you can get your point across so everyone comes to at least understand your point, but hopefully believe and accept your point. And that's what's in the Colombian orator. And that is what educated Phyllis Wheatley. And that is how Terrence was educated. I hope you're seeing this tapestry I'm painting, I hope you're following me. Terence was from ancient Rome, so his education was inspired by that same type of education. That came over into America and came in through uh, Terence's uh, plays in America where early Americans such as John Adams and their children were reading the plays of Terence to learn Latin. And then they were reading the Columbian orator that is connected to the ancient teachings of an ancient Roman teacher, Quintilian, about oration being the most powerful tool you can use to change a society, to hold your Republic accountable for what it's supposed to be. Have we not seen that historically in all of our ancestors here? (laughs) And so Phyllis Wheatley writes this poetry. Thomas Jefferson, again, my schizophrenic friend here, I'm struggling, says, oh, there's no way. There's no way this woman could have, this slave woman could have written this. You had to check out his notes on the state of Virginia, where he gives a whole essay on why black people are inferior. But John Wheatley and Susan Wheatley gather all their friends together around Phyllis Wheatley, and they are determined to prove to the world Phyllis Wheatley did indeed write this poetry. And they had all of their friends gather around Phyllis Wheatley, listen to her reader poems, and they signed her first manuscript as evidence. We can attest that Phyllis Wheatley wrote this poetry. This is why we know she wrote it today. And one of those friends who signed Phyllis Wheatley's manuscript was John Hancock. All right, so that's Phyllis Wheatley, right? We know that she wrote a poem to George Washington and he wrote her back and they have this moment where they share a common literacy because she writes him a poem rooted in Greek mythology, encouraging him as he's leading the revolution and he writes her a letter back and signs it, you have been gifted by the muses, a common literacy. He knew, she knew what a muse was. And he asked her to visit him sometime. I am your humble servant. And they have that shared literacy, that shared moment. Terence has that shared moment with the Roman nobility. Phyllis Wheatley has that shared moment with American leadership before is even a country. That exchange between George Washington and Phyllis, Phyllis Wheatley happened in 1776. That February, just a few months later, we were a country and she continued to write poems and letters of encouragement hoping that maybe as America fought for its freedom they would decide to fight for the freedom of her people but they were a little slow to pick up on that that cue so then we have Frederick Douglass right we've talked about the Columbian Orator we see it now in American history We see how important Cicero and this reading of Terence is. And can you imagine? Think about that. Can you imagine what students would feel if they knew one of the first textbooks in American history is a book written by an ancient African? Like, can you imagine? Okay, I get excited when I think about it. And then so then we have Frederick Douglass, who, unlike uh, Phyllis Wheatley, did not have a master to educate him. Right. We know his story. He taught himself to read at 12 years old. This is very important. And this points back to my hymn that I started with. He gets a Columbian orator. Now, sometimes we read that, we hear about this Columbian orator and we would think, oh, he just kind of picked up a book off the ground and decided to read it. But Frederick Douglass was paying attention to what was being taught in the schools around him. He was looking at the books the children were reading. He was looking at the, what the master's children were studying and he saw the Columbian orator. So he goes to a Methodist bookshop And he had saved up a few pennies from his little odd jobs. And he purchases the Colombian orator. It is so important that we understand why a Methodist bookshop, because John Wesley, the father of the Methodist faith was a very outspoken preacher against slavery. He did not hide it. And so I believe Frederick Douglass went to that Methodist bookshop because he knew He would not be turned away. And he was right because that bookstore owner sold him that book and made him promise not to tell anyone where he got it. And Frederick Douglass says, when I was in my depths of despair that I would forever be a slave, this book, the Columbian orator with the speeches of Cicero spoke light to my life. It gave me a hope. It freed his mind. It, 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 it. Affirmed his humanity when everyone around him was saying he was less than that. And so, from reading these speeches, from he would he would memorize Cicero's speeches and others, Cato's as well. He would, he would gather other enslaved men around him, and he would quote these speeches to them to empower them as well. And he, as an enslaved child taught himself the rhetoric needed to speak against slavery. He eventually escapes to freedom. There's so much more to Frederick Douglass's, but I'm running out of time, but he escapes to freedom. And instead of living happily ever after in Canada, he remains in America. That always baffles me. Even under the threat of his life, he remains a public servant in America. And just like Terence connected with the Roman leaders and Phyllis Wheatley connected with the American leaders of her time, Frederick Douglass, through a common literacy shared with Abraham Lincoln, who also was a poor self-taught white man who also read from the Columbian orator and other classic texts. They shared a common bond. I'm not going to say it's a friendship. It was a little complicated. But at the second inaugural address, Abraham Lincoln said, Frederick Douglass, you are my friend and I value your opinion. How did you like my speech? And not too long after Abraham Lincoln gave that second inaugural address where he laid out his plans of making America a union, a plan for helping black people come in and be a participant in our democracy. John Wilkes Booth, who sat in that audience determined to murder him. But Abraham Lincoln had a second to start this plan through the Freedmen's Bureau, a really rough and rugged way. And people, we have not had enough time. Abraham Lincoln died before we could see his full evolution. But if you read his speeches from the beginning to when he died, you see this evolution happening. He died before the Freedmen's Bureau could really get going, but he invited a a man, uh, named Oliver Howard to lead the Freedmen's Bureau. And part of it, in addition to giving land and, and medical support and, and law support, all, whatever they needed to become acclimated to this democracy they now were considered to be a part of, one of the most important parts of the Freedmen's Bureau was setting up schools. And this is important. So Oliver Howard is the founder of Howard University. So anytime you look at the history of an HBCU, that was had some connection to the Freedmen's Bureau, if you read what they were studying, they were classical. So you got Howard University, St. Augustine's College, Clark Atlanta, which was I think was Atlanta University back then, and others. They were rooted in the classical tradition. They've forgotten that heritage, but they were rooted in that classical tradition And so these are the schools that produced many of our great leaders. And so Abraham Lincoln passes away. Andrew Johnson's ends the the Freedmen's Bureau. There's a slow taking away over some decades of classical education from the black community as well as the larger community, American uh, society at large. But before it was completely gone, there was a young man educated before desegregation educated in this classical tradition whose name is Martin Luther King and he talks about it in his autobiography, the type of education he had and how the works of Henry David Thoreau, now we're getting into works inspired by classics. Henry David Thoreau's Civil Disobedience were inspirational to him at just 16 years old but we see in his letter from a Birmingham jail how inspired he was with classics and the works of the canon. But my most favorite quote in that letter, and I'm ending just about here. My most favorite quote from that letter from a Birmingham jail is when he's writing this letter because a bunch of, of um, non-black uh, ministers told him he was wrong for these peaceful protests. He's not respecting authority. God says we should respect the authority over us. Martin Luther King first says, "I'm this is weird. I'm surprised that you're not Fussing about why I'm marked. You're you're not troubled by the racism my people are enduring. You're more troubled the fact that I am kneeling down and praying in protests. And so he writes this letter. Now a lot of times we talk about letter from a Birmingham jail. We all know all the references to the Western canon he has in it. And if you think about it, even though it says letter from a Birmingham jail, we imagine him sitting in a library surrounded by books. But Martin Luther King was in a jail with no paper, no pen, no books. Someone smuggles a paper and pen to him. And from memory, going back to that quote that was, oh, I love that quote. Myth and memory lands on hope. Oh, my God. When you said that, Doc, when you said that, I was about to come through the zoo Because as he was sitting in despair in a jail cell, his only hope was his memory of classics. And he writes this letter from a Birmingham jail. And one of the quotes, he says it is, I must, we must be nonviolent gadflies. Just as Socrates was one and caused his society to turn from their erred truths. We must do the same in our society. And so it's the memory of Socrates that as Martin the King sat in that jail cell wondering, will I be alive? Will they lynch me? Will they set me free? He remembered Socrates and what he did and he became empowered to keep pushing forward. And then we see, right, he gets out. We know he was assassinated, but we know that he did do more work. And eventually, just like Terence ended up with the leaders of Rome, Phyllis Wheatley ended up with the leaders of early America. Frederick Douglass ended up with Abraham Lincoln. Martin Luther King ended up standing next to Lyndon B. Johnson to sign the Civil Rights Act of 1964. This is our narrative of hope, rooted in the memory of the myths and the stories and the human experiences of those who've come before us. We don't look to them because we want to be white. Like that's not why I'm doing it for sure. Hopefully you can see that. We're not doing that because we want to be elitist or better than someone. I'm looking for people who want to delve into this study so that we may come together. There is a story. There are stories of elitism and racism and white supremacy surrounding these texts. Absolutely. But there are other stories like the few, I've and there's so many more. I wish I could tell you more of how there have been people, black and white, Indian. Gandhi has stories about how the canon inspired him. I've found a tradition in Brazil with Paulo Freire. All of us have been inspired by this myth and memory landed in hope because we think about these people and what they went through and the strategies they used. And we are empowered. We are equipped to continue the work of progress. Thank you. Well, I wanna thank you so much for joining me here at Kush Classics. I did not offer you a jazz interlude a sailor moment because i wanted you just to listen to that whole lecture that came from the very depths of my soul i firmly believe that classical education is the key to a lot of our societal problems especially in the issues I see in K-12 education. And I know when I say that, a lot of people will have a struggle with that. But I wanna invite you, this lecture gave you some tidbits in history, in black history, in American history, and we can only find the answer to our problems if we know what is true. And so I wanna invite you to join me in investigating, not just the history of education in America, not just the history of black education, but the history of the philosophy that is at the very foundation of most of our history makers, black or whites. Well, I hope you will join me next time for Kush Classics. I'm Dr. Anika Prather.